So we're continuing our journey today through the book of Malachi. Uh, we've been working the last couple weeks. Today's passage is found for you on page 11 in your order of worship. If you'd like to turn there in your own Bibles, you're welcome to do that as well. There's also a kid's version found at the bottom of page 11. If you uh, would like to turn there in an actual Bible, there should be a dark one there in front of you and the chair in front of you. You can reach there and grab that. It's found on page 753. And should you not have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. But before we get to the text, kind of want to put you into the mood of the text today. I want to bring to your mind performance evaluations. Yeah, those of us with jobs, those are just super, right? Yeah, they're great. Some people have very formal job evaluations. Some people have very informal job evaluations. For instance, myself and Mike have very informal yet weekly public job evaluations, usually over lunch on Sunday, we know, and then the emails that follow. But that's just one form of evaluation, right? There's also the very systematic evaluation that happens at your job filled with important HR phrases like meets expectations or exceeds expectations. Who's a good little boy? Or even the very, very coveted consistently exceeds expectations. Right? You like that one because in the background of that one is like cha-ching, right? But sometimes you get the not so popular needs improvement. Now, we're not going to ask the question how I know all this, okay? We're just going to keep that to ourselves. But today what we do is we get to overhear God looking at his people, specifically his priests, and deciding, you know what? Y'all are unacceptable. I've looked at your performance and it's time for an improvement plan. And it's gonna be ugly. It's gonna be personal. Excrement will be involved. And it ends in a public shaming. So with that introduction in mind, let's turn together to God's word. Malachi chapter two, verses one through nine. Again, it's found for you on page 11 of your order of worship there. This is God's word. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before difficult 
enigmatic texts like this, Lord, we ask that you would once again give us truth, truth for our growth, truth for our transformation, truth to cast our eyes off of ourself and onto the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we ask that as we come before this passage today that you would afflict the comfortable and that you would comfort the afflicted. We ask that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So Malachi is a post-exilic prophet. That means if you remember this thing in the Old Testament called the exile, this big bad country called Babylon came and took over ancient Israel, carried them off to Babylon. Their country sort of ceased to exist. All but the dregs were left in their country. About 80-ish years later, Babylon was conquered by the Persians. The Persians for the time had a very enlightened rule of having uh, an empire. They basically said, we will help you rebuild your country. Go back, rebuild your country, rebuild your religion, do your thing, just don't rebel and pay your taxes and we're all good. So they're back, funded by Persian empire to rebuild their country and it's in shambles. And in the midst of all this rebuilding, we see that there are terrible priests allowing unclean, wicked sacrifices to happen at the newly rebuilt temple as they're trying to reestablish their culture. God says, doing so to these priests despises my name, he says. These are priests who were fearless in a bad way. They had no fear of the Lord whatsoever, and it led to fearless sacrifices, and it led to fearless worshipers, all of which dishonored God. That's what we all saw last week. And what he did then is he calls out the priests a little bit, but he really calls out the worshipers back in chapter one. And now he turns back to the priests and he's done calling them out. It's time for judgment. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. When priests are this bad at their job, God's improvement plan becomes a whooping. It's the only way to really put it. That's what's gonna happen. We're gonna see it today ourselves. God's feedback to these priests is a warning to heed, it's a model to shoot for, and it's a punishment to expect. But before we jump into that, whenever you go through the book of Malachi, you can remember this for the sermon series, for your own personal reading, if you ever do this in the future, always go back to chapter one, verse two. Every time you start reading Malachi again, no matter where you pick up, you gotta go back to chapter one, verse two, because that's the anchor that holds this whole thing together. And that anchor is God himself comes to his people and says, I have loved you. He's talking to those already in a covenant relationship of grace with them. This is not Malachi standing on the street corner yelling at pagans to clean up and come to the God of Israel. This is him standing on the street corner to those already in a relationship with the God of Israel and says, y'all need to clean up by God's grace. Why are you doing this? God's already cleaned you up. You're back getting dirty again. What is wrong with you? Be who you are, talking to the beloved. So keep that in mind, that this is God coming to those already tasting of his grace who are trying to reject it or acting as if it's not big, uh, that big of a deal. God has loved them, and now he's critiquing them. So the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is a priestly warning to heed. God comes to his priests with a thou shalt. It's a commandment. It's the same word. It's a specific word given for commandment. These are priests. So what he's doing is he's using terms from their industry. He's showing, hey, I'm an insider because I defined your job description. I know what you're supposed to do. These priests were the ones who administered commandments to others and helped interpret them. Now God's coming to them and saying, I have a commandment for you. 
I'm going to evaluate you, and I'm going to give you a glimpse into your future. Look with me at verse 2, what this glimpse looks like. It's a threat of judgment. It says, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. If they won't obey, all that stuff from chapter one, if they won't commit their heart. Now, we need to be careful when we hear that as Westerners because we have this really intense bifurcation in our culture. Heart is emotions, head is rationality. That's not really shared with most of humanity for most of history. So back in this time, it wasn't quite that distinctive. The heart was more like the center of your whole person. So when he says, take it to heart, he's not saying, man, you need to really feel this. He's saying, you need to be this. It's them to it's a call to be a whole person. You say you're this kind of person, live it out. That's taking it to heart. God says if they're not going to commit their whole being, then God will unleash the curse on them, and he will curse their blessings. There's a double meaning here. What does it mean to curse your blessings? Well, a major part of a priest's job was to pronounce blessing on God's people. The most famous one, many of you, if you've been around church world, you know the ironic blessing. Lord, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. You've heard that. It was the idea that God was channeling his blessing through the priest, and so a big part of their job was to give people God's grace. God says, I'm going to turn those into curses. The people are going to come to you now like, you know what, don't go to that priest because all of his blessings are bad. If he blesses your crop, it's going to die. Go somewhere else. This priest's blessings have been cursed. But the second part of this is also important is they were not allowed to own land. The Levites couldn't own land. They couldn't cultivate fields. They could not feed themselves. And so, so they could not have to worry about that so they could do their ministry. They would get a percentage or part of the offerings brought in to take them, to, to support themselves. So they didn't have to go out and do battle in the world of commerce. And they had this respected position. It's a big blessing. And God says, I'm gonna take that blessing. I'm gonna take it right away from you. I'm gonna rip it all away from you. And God says, in fact, if you look around at your land right now that's not doing so well, I'm already starting to curse you. And then we get to verse three. It's shocking. It's gross. It made the junior high boy inside of me chuckle a little bit. Let's look at verse three together. It says, behold, I will rebuke your offspring and I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Yuck. Yeah. So first of all, he's going to rebuke them. The hereditary line of priests will come to nothing. The blessing of these men knowing that their sons get to be priests after them, God's going to take it away. It's no more. And then once again, God uses shop talk from their industry to show them, here's what I'm really talking about. He uses the language of their job. I want, I want you to, to get this language with me. So I want to look at Exodus 29, verse 14. It says this, describing the sacrifices. It says, it's dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It's a sin offering. Okay, so what's going on here is the priests were also the community butchers. You would bring your sacrifice. They'd process the animal for you, give you part of it back, take part for themselves, and then there was the great, the best part was for the Lord, and then all the stuff you didn't want, like all the undigested particles in the stomach and all the undi further digested stuff later on in the system, you know, dung, all of that was collected, taken outside the camp, and burned up and consumed as if it were sin itself. It was metaphorical and also, for cleanliness sake, destroyed out there. So what God comes and says to his priests here, 
He says, I'm going to smear, just grab a gigantic handful of all that unacceptable stuff. I'm going to smear it all over your face. All those nice robes you wear that I spend chapters describing exactly how to make in the Pentateuch, I'm going to smear it all over that. And because you are unclean just like that is, just like that stuff is taken outside the camp and destroyed, guess what, priests? So are you. They thought so little of God. They dishonored him by offering unclean, unacceptable things on the altar. And so God basically comes and says, I'm going to return the favor. I'm going to do to you what you've done to me. This is hard, isn't it? This is hard. If you brought a friend here today, you're like, it's normally not like this. I'm sorry. Usually it's all about kindness and grace. Come back next week, please. Right? But you need to hear this, dear Christians. Hear this. We come needing God. We don't come to a needy God. His plans don't require us. And sometimes we act as if we're vital to his plans, don't we? Instead of receiving his grace, we act as if we're somehow necessary for his grace. But see here, just in this little bit, that God's promises will outlast the rebellion of his people even the rebellion of his leaders. Remember, these people were recovering Babylonians is the best way to think about them. It had been close to 80 years. All but the oldest of the old had no idea what Israel used to be like. They had never seen the old temple. It was only the oldest of the old who could remember what the old temple looked like and wept over the paucity of the new temple. Everybody else, they were raised as Babylonians. They had never seen a temple sacrifice. None of that stuff was allowed in Babylon. So this is all new to them. And so they were trained by that Babylonian system to think all gods began with a little g. They were small, they were needy, and they were limited to a territory. And these recovering Babylonians, just like you know the sun will set this evening, they knew that since their God allowed the exile He's actually not that powerful. The Babylonian God had been able to come and invade his territory and beat him, and thus they had been taken away. So now that they're back in his territory, okay, well, we're, we're in his jurisdiction. We'll, we'll, we'll placate him, but we know he's not that powerful because, you know, the exile happened. He, he got beat. So we'll give him his sacrifices, but we don't need to go out of our way to do it right. And again, we're priests, who else is going to do all this stuff? Let him pout. He'll get over it. So God reintroduces himself to these priests here as, as big, unlimited, and not beholden to them at all. He will disqualify and disgrace them. And it's a warning they'd better heed because when priests are this bad, God's improvement plan is a whooping. The next thing we see is verses four through seven. We see a priestly model to shoot for. So starting in verse 14, God kind of gets nostalgic and he goes back to the beginning. He goes to Levi, the priest of the past. The Old Testament priests were all from the tribe of Levi. And so God is looking back to those early days, to the good old days when, uh, when the priesthood was faithful. And notice here the grace in the midst of this harsh feedback. He wants this covenant with his priests to stand, he says. He doesn't want it to be destroyed. The punishments he's just threatened them above are punishments to bring about grace and renewal. And that's right here in the text. Look with me at verse five. It says, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. 
It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. See, God even goes so far as to say that in the good old days, in days past, the faithful priests brought about life and peace as a gift from God. See, God doesn't need the priests, but the people do. That's why God so cares about this so much. The priests insulated and protected an unholy people from a holy God, and they've disqualified themselves from doing that, and it's the people who suffer. When the priests did honor and fear God, he in turn says, well, I blessed them profoundly. I gave them life. I gave them peace. God is harsh with his priests here because they're depriving the people of his blessing. God wants priests who stand in awe of him, he says. It's literally the word for falling down or being broken before him. And unfortunately, what we see here is that the priests in Malachi's day do the exact opposite They expect God to fall down before them in gratitude that any offering they deign bring to him. They have no fear of the Lord in them, he says. And so they bring God's wrath upon the people. Now, this seems a little quick if you're reading through this text, and the reason it's quick is because there's actually an Old Testament story behind this that the priest would immediately be familiar with. There was a time of particular rebellion in Israel's history, and a Levite named Phineas took action to stop it. And I want to pick up on God's evaluation of Phineas uh, in Numbers chapter 25, starting in verse 10. God says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after them the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. This is actually the covenant referred to in verse four. There's no place in the Old Testament where God comes and makes a covenant with Levi. All of that stuff about life and peace and perpetual priesthood, it's actually in this story right here. This is what he's talking about. And what we see here is that when a priest publicly obeys God, it turns away God's wrath from his people. Priests who do their job are instruments of grace to God's people. Verse 6 tells us that they instruct God's people in that fearful grace. And in so doing, they turn many, many people from sin or iniquity is the word used. And here's where this gets kind of unpopular, even today. God's people can't turn away from iniquity unless they know what it is. A priest who does his job points out sin. See, behind this apparent harshness of God, do you see it? Is this intense compassion for people who don't know. They're blind, so I send them priests to show them how much they need my grace. That's where verse seven lands. Look with me at verse seven. It says, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. See, the priests were to guard the truth. Their actions in doing sacrifices were guarding truth. Their teaching of the Torah and their explanation of God's word was guarding the truth. So basically, they had one job, guard the truth, observe the truth. And when they did their job, God's people come to seek instruction from them. 
This is the only place in the Old Testament, apparently, where it refers to priests as messengers. Usually that word is reserved for angelic beings or the prophets themselves as the messengers of God. The priests are not usually called messengers, but Malachi does it here, giving us a hint that right teaching of God's word is just as important as right sacrifices. And that if these unfaithful priests heed the warning, they'll demonstrate it by becoming faithful teachers of God's word. If they teach true, it's going to show that they take this to heart. And if not, it's going to be bad for these priests because when priests are this bad at their job, God's improvement plan becomes a whooping. And we finally see the whooping coming in verses 8 and 9, a priestly punishment to expect. So we get to verse 8, and we see that these priests have been nothing like this model we read in verses four through seven. They've been nothing like these faithful priests of old. They have departed from the way, and in so doing, it says they've actually caused many people to stumble by their instructions. They've corrupted everything that they were supposed to be, and it's hurt God's people. When they don't do their one job from verse seven, it results in this chaos and hurt in the community in verse eight. As I was studying this, I kept thinking about how you know, deconstruction stories were very popular a year or so ago. They may still be popular. I got off social media about eight, nine months ago, so I'm blissfully ignorant of a lot of things. I, I highly recommend it to you. It's great. Anyway, so it may, they may be still going on, but deconstruction stories were really popular uh, about a year ago on social media. And, and they're popular because real life and real faith are not easy. And there are very few simple answers. And so I just want to say before I, before I talk about this a little further, you know, if you're struggling with your faith today, I, I hope you have come to know, or I hope I can just tell you and invite you that Sycamore is a place that's safe for questions. We don't see questions as a threat. We don't see questions as a sign of immaturity. And I would love to grab coffee with you and talk about these very difficult things that don't have simplistic answers. So anyway, so that, that, that's, that's for free. So Deconstruction was trending about a year ago. And when I mean trending, I'm not just being snarky. I mean like there were actually hashtags about it. There was actually instructional videos on how to make a really good deconstruction TikTok to get lots of followers. I mean, it, it became a thing, okay? People like wanted to have a better deconstruction story than you did on, on social media. It became really high profile when some Christian leaders did it. And then even a handful of celebrity pastors publicly abandoned their faith. And it really started trending then. And just like verse 8 says, when these guys did it, it turned many aside from the way. Just like the priests in verse 8, these faithless pastors took others with them. So God call, comes to pastors like that today, and he comes to priests like this in the Old Testament, and he calls it like it is. He says, you have broken covenant. And so instead of getting the blessings for obedience, you have earned the curse for disobedience. Look with me at verse nine as he pronounces judgment. He says, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. So he comes and he pronounces judgment and it almost seems like he throws that partiality thing in there at the end. It's almost like an afterthought, right? But in the context of instruction, here's what's going on. They let the things that were culturally acceptable but not popular, they kind of let those slide. 
and the stuff that people really liked, they really emphasized. Like for their context, what would happen is the priest would be like, hey, y'all need to come to temple. Please, come, that's important. Come to temple. That's easy. And y'all need to bring an offering of some kind. Now, if it's actually a sacrificial sacrifice, it's like a really good animal, that's not that big of a deal. You can bring your junk. God, God doesn't mind your garbage. But just come. Right, the stuff that people were like had no problem with, the priest like, yeah, I do that. And the stuff people were like, I don't know about that. Like, oh yeah, that's not that big of a deal either. And God comes and says, actually, that's despising my name. You've despised my name before all the people. And so I will have all the people despise your name now. What you've publicly done to me, I will publicly do to you. Boys and girls, this has been hard. I want to look at one verse for you guys. The bottom of page 11, let's look at your verse 9. Here's what God says here. He says, so I will do to you what you have done to me. All the people will now see you as worthless because you don't follow me and you don't serve them well either. You see, boys and girls, they were afraid of the people more than they were afraid of God. And so they didn't do what God said. They did what the people would like the very people that they feared instead of God will now despise them because they didn't fear God. See, when priests are bad at their job, God's got to do something about it because God's people need better priests. They need a better system. So as we wrap this thing up, you know, there's lots of applications here for pastors and elders. We're, we're kind of like the closest New Testament roles to these Old Testament priests. But what about the rest of y'all? What, what can we do with this? I hope you see here that God cares about what his people do. The worship practices, the lifestyles of his beloved people, those who've received his grace, it matters. How we continue to respond to his grace matters. But here's the problem. We are hardwired to perform, not receive his grace. We're hardwired to perform. And so we are hardwired to revert to this system. Here's how we do it. As Christians, when conviction comes, what do we do? When God points out our failures, when our shortcomings are right before us, when all of a sudden that stupid thing we said comes back to our mind, we revert to this system. We do. Oh, I need to bring a really good offering of my sadness, my regret, my guilt, and my resolve to do better. I need to give that to God as an offering. Then I'll feel his closeness again. Then I'll feel God's love again. Then I'll know I'm forgiven. Christian, no. I would be a God-despising pastor if I did not warn you. All that stuff is unclean and God does not accept it for your sins. He doesn't accept it. So what do you do? When that guilt comes, when that conviction comes, what do you do? You once again place your faith and trust in Jesus and you repent and say, Lord, I've sinned. Please put my sin on Jesus again. Yeah, but Pastor Sean, it's a habitual thing and I can't just say those words unless I really mean them. I gotta like really feel guilty first, right? Like, um, can I just tell you real quick, y'all? We never mean them when we repent. That's why our, our confession says we need to repent of our repenting because we're so bad at it. God doesn't look at us and say, okay, here's Jesus. As soon as you really mean it, I'll give you some. Oh, I'm not sure I'm feeling it. Feel a little more guilty. Mm, no, I want you to grovel a little bit more, and then I'll give you some Jesus. We think God is like that when we do this. 
And can I just say as your pastor, here's what else we're doing. We're looking as Christians, we're looking at the sacrifice of Jesus and we're saying his pain and suffering is not adequate. I've got to add my pain and suffering too. And until I feel like I've adequately suffered enough, then I'll go and repent to Jesus. Well, yeah, I know he died. I know he suffered, but I, I don't feel guilty enough yet. You see what we're doing? We're saying that's not enough. I've got to add my garbage to the altar. That is unacceptable. When that conviction for sin comes, you place your faith and trust. You say, Lord, I don't even know if I mean this, but I want to mean this. Will you please forgive me based on what Jesus has done? Let these disgusting priests cause you to despise them and despise the system they represent. And when you see your heart going that back to that performance system, stop and say, no, that doesn't work. And instead of offering that kind of filth on God's altar, once again, cast yourself on Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for your sins. Because in his blood alone, you know you're forgiven. You know you're accepted. Oh, Christians, when your hearts revert back to this system of work, let this passage remind you that this sacrificial system depended too much on sinful men. It doesn't work. They're too weak. We need better priests. And so once again, hear the glorious words that Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest who offered up the perfect sacrifice of himself on God's altar. And united to him by faith, you are acceptable in him. Jesus Christ is everything this passage calls out for. Unlike these unfaithful priests, he did listen to his father. He devoted his life to give honor to God's name. He earned for us a covenant of life and peace. He stood in awe of God's name. True instruction was in his mouth and he turned so many, many from iniquity. He did guard the truth. And to this day, people seek his instruction. And instead of being publicly despised as these priests were, in his lifetime, God came and ripped open the skies at one point and shouted out for everybody to hear, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then after he'd been in the grave three days, the Lord God then ripped open the grave and brought him back to life and said, this is my beloved son, I accept his sacrifice. That is Christianity. That is the fulfillment of this system. United to Jesus in the gospel, you not only get to taste the fulfillment of this system, but all of his faithfulness is your faithfulness. And so instead of bringing your guilt and your regret and your resolve at your failures, you can once again cast yourself on Jesus' faithfulness alone. In other words, you can repent and believe the gospel again and again and again. And if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, oh, I hope you've heard. It's not about your works. It's not about how much you can work yourself up to feel guilty or earn. It's about casting yourself as an absolute failure on Jesus Christ alone and asking God for his mercy. And you'll get it. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we repent of our repenting. We're so quick to bring the subjective, emotional feelings of our heart as a way to prove our repentance is true instead of believing your promises that the gospel's true. Lord, would you help us once again to trust in your promises more than we trust in our own hearts? 
Lord, we ask that you would help us to know the forgiveness of Christ that you have promised when we place our faith and trust in him. And Lord, we pray today for those who do not know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sinners, that you would be true to your promise that where he is lifted up, you will draw all people to yourself. Lord, would you do your work even now of drawing people from death to life that they might repent and believe. I pray you would build your kingdom right here, right now. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.